Should we should we do it? All right. Okay. Ready to go. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, we're joined today by Sarah Cliff and an empty chair. Uh, Dara has... She's in Australia. ...flown to Australia. She may be on an airplane as we speak. Maybe she's listening to The Weeds. I think it's it's very far away, Australia. Quite far. I'm told. I went to New Zealand, and um, it's real far. Yeah. And- Do you guys have podcasts in Australia? Yeah, if anyone wants to invite us to do um, a live show in Australia. Oh, interesting. I think we would definitely go. (laughs) Sure, get some kangaroos. I bet Ezra would be grumpy about it. Yeah, probably, but he'd go. Yes. Uh, Okay. Okay. With that open (laughs) invitation. Uh, So what we really wanted to talk about, you know, it's very weedsy. Got a research paper about Medicaid, one of our favorite things. Uh, But we're here really to talk about babies. We are here to talk about babies as I um, prepare to leave the weeds for a few months due to a baby and me having a baby, it turns out that other people are not making the same decision. So we want to talk about this federal report. You're so against trend. (laughs) I'm doing what I can to keep up the fertility rate because we are seeing that it is declining. I had a baby back in 2015 when it was, when people still did that. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) you were more of a baby having hipster sort of thing. So anyways, we want to talk about this report that came out Um, last week from the National Center for Health Statistics that shows that once again, the fertility rate in the United States is declining and talk a little bit about why that is happening. Should we be concerned that is happening? Kind of think through what this means. So first, I just want to start off by kind of grounding us in some of the numbers. This report that came out last week, it shows that the fertility rate in the United States, it fell to a record low for a second straight year, kind of extending out this trend we've seen since the Great Recession of declining births in the United States um, since 2008 or so. So the fertility rate in the United States, it fell to 60.2 births per 1,000 women of childbearing age, which is down 3% from 2016. And they also note it was the largest single-year decline since 2010 when, you know, the economy was still quite weak. And one other way to frame this to go out a little bit longer is that in 2017, women had nearly 500,000 fewer babies than in 2007, despite the fact there were 7% more women in prime childbearing years, which are defined as 20 to 39 So we are definitely seeing this decline. It is happening over about a decade or so that we've seen this steady year-after-year decline, and we're now entering the second year of hitting a 30-year low in um, fertility rates in the United States. One of the things I think that's important to note is that this does not look uniform across the population. You, You are seeing declines in fertility rates for women in their 20s and 30s, You're actually seeing an increase in fertility rates for women over 40, suggesting more women having children later. You're seeing a massive decline in um, teen birth rates. Um, Teen birth rates went down 7% just between 2016 and 2017, which is a really significant decline for one year. Um, If you go all the way back to 2007, teen births are down 55%, so they've essentially fallen in half for over a decade, which is just a sea change to see in a public health trend in one decade. So I think that's some important framing context that we are seeing fertility rates go down, but where they're going down and, you know, for who they're going down is not constant by any means. And and I think another important just piece of sort of 
framing information for for this discussion because it can it can sometimes go a, a little off the rails and, and people start thinking you know we're talking about like crazy like handmaid's tale type type ideas or, or bad things is that um, we have pretty good you know survey based research the general social survey they ask women uh, how many children they would like to have. And that number has fallen. It fell a lot in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but since 1980 or so, it's been around 2.5 children per, per woman. It, it's gone a little bit below that. It's in, in some of the past years, it's gone a little bit above that in, in recent years. Um, and so that's sort of important context here, that the the fall in the number of, of babies that people are having has not been accompanied by a drop in the number of babies that people say that they would like to have, right? It seems to be the case that we've gotten a lot better at avoiding like unplanned pregnancies in the teen years, that we've also had a trend, you know, related to economics, education, things like that, to people delaying childbirth out of their 20s more so. And then we've had some technological and medically driven success in in making it possible for more people to have babies in their 40s when they want to. Uh, But there are, you know, some biological and other limits to sort of how far that's gone. And so this sort of fertility gap has opened up, right, in which we're getting we're getting better at people not having kids younger than they want to at a faster rate than we're getting better at helping older people who would like to have children do it. And then there's a question of, you know, economics and sort of feasibility, life circumstances. But for, for whatever reason, right, people are not – it's not that 1.8 children per woman per se is a social crisis exactly. I mean there could be some dispute about it. But people say they want to have on average two to three kids. That would be an above a replacement rate. Uh, fertility would be in line with historical trends. It would be high compared to developed world norms but not high in, in historical sense at all. But it's not actually – coming together for people. And I think I think it's reasonable to consider that a significant social problem on a par with all kinds of other things that we we talk about on the weeds. Um, family life and, and childs is a, like it's very important to people and it's it's actually kind of sad uh, if we're not able to for people to have the kind of families that they would like to have as well as economic issues about you know potential population decline as a, as a long run can you talk so how much because I think you've thought through these issues more than I have how much do you worry about like setting aside and like accepting you know what you're saying that this is something that is important to people to have the families they want? How do you think about the economics of childbearing, which does get us more towards like handmaids and reproduction and not saying we're going down that path by any means. But like, how do you think about like from an economic point of view for the future of the United States? Like, does this report we're talking about worry you? I think that people should take this seriously. I kind of think there's like a left and a right version of not taking this issue seriously. On on the left version, I think that there is some willful blindness about like America's role in the world and related issues to that. Uh, If you look at, you know, Japan, um, they have had very rapidly aging population, now shrinking population for some time. There are some difficult social challenges that 
you know, align with that. You can find endless number of stories about lonely old people and, and things like that. There are also some upsides. I mean, Japan, for a variety of reasons, has a much better kind of housing affordability trajectory than the United States. Uh, obviously, if your population is shrinking rather than growing, it's easier to, like, accommodate everyone space-wise. At the same time, you know, Japan post-World War II has been this kind of like modest country in the world, you know, kind of keeps to itself, claims to not have a military, things like that. I think that Americans, you know, there's like a reason why Make America Great Again like makes sense to people as a headline. Uh, We are the sort of flagship carrier for a set of liberal and democratic ideals in the world. We have traditionally, uh, or at least for a long time, we've been like a really big country that like cuts a big presence on the international stage. And like, I don't think we want to sort of quietly age. Um, This is the fact that all of the Western democracies are experiencing these same Mm -hmm trends, right? And in some cases, like much, much lower, right? Spain and Italy are down to about one child per woman. Uh, Germany is is also very low at about 1.5, although they are on an upward trajectory. France is now a little bit above the United States. I don't think that we want like to say that the end stage of liberal democracy and market capitalism is that society is like this will just die off. Right. And that like the future of humanity is going to belong to uh, a small number of eccentric, fanatical religious sects. Um, No, but you know what I mean? Because like that to me is actually the real Handmaid's Tale scenario. Right. It's not that like democracies become fertility conscious and think about family policy. It's that we pretend not to see what's going on and then like only – like weird cults, right, which are like keep women barefoot and pregnant and having nine children, that becomes the entire future of the human race. Seems like not that appealing to me. And then that to the right is like I do think we should take seriously the economics of this issue, right, that like as time goes on, people need more education to have like a basic middle class life. So that delays the point at which you can realistically, like responsibly have children. It also raises the cost of having a child because you need to bear that as a parent, right? Then we have technological improvements. We have rising wages. At least we want to have rising wages. But like the internet does not make it possible for childcare providers to be more efficient in taking care of infants, Right. And then you have the same thing for new parents. Right. It's just like an inherently labor intensive occupation. Like you have to spend time with the children. You have to pay other people to take care of them. And it gets worse over time. And you can get sort of grumpy and free markety about it and be like, well, you know, like don't have the kids unless you can afford them. Right. But like the relative cost of like, Watching a movie at home on your couch has like plummeted over the past 50 years. Like there's so much and that means it's like gotten more and more expensive to have children. And like if we want our society to persist in the long run, like we need to take that seriously. Like for the exact same reason that like, you know, I don't know, we have aircraft carriers and roads and police officers. Like we need to do something to make it viable for people to like – have families. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the tone of a lot of the coverage I've seen around this report that came out last week is very 
worried about what does this mean and why aren't people having uh, children and like what sort of policies are holding them back. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think one of the things that's easy to lose that Matt touched on a little bit that I do want to dive into a little bit is that some of this is is probably very, very good news, particularly a lot of that we're seeing a, a pretty steep decline in unintended pregnancies for women who, you know, are not ready to become parents yet. And that's really the story of teen pregnancies. I think it's really, you know, important to keep in mind that we're seeing, you know, an overall 3% decline in the fertility rate. But then when you go down to teen births, it goes up to a 7% decline, that you're seeing a much steeper trend. And, you know, I think when you look at these different segments of the population, you have different stories about, you know, women in their 30s who are not having children. It might be in, you know, the case that Matt said of having this gap between the desired number of children they want to have and the actual number of children they want to have. But then when you look at the decline in teen births, I mean, that's just an undeniably really, really good trend for the economic mobility of those teens, for the ability of them to go to school, to, you know, complete a college degree, to get jobs, to be self-supported. There's also a lot of intergenerational effects that start happening. So one of the things you're seeing since this teen birth decline has been happening, since 1991, there are fewer kids born to teen moms at this point. And that's one of the big risk factors for becoming a teen parent yourself is being born to a teen parent. And so you're seeing this kind of, um, you know, snowball effect over the past nearly 30 years or so at this point from when we hit a high in the teen birth rate in the ni- in 1991. So some of this is good and some of this is like due to policies that seem to be working. One of the big things that seems to be driving down the teen birth rate and probably driving down the birth rate, you know, among all segments, uh, all age segments of the population is access to better contraceptives. So you see like a huge uptick among teens using um, implants as birth control, which are long-acting and reversible. You put it in your arm for like three, and they last for three to five years. You don't think about it, like a, unlike a birth control pill that you have to remember to take every day, which, you know, for an adult and especially for a teenager can be quite challenging. So there is, you know, some good news and some public health success in this particular study. And I think, I mean, it certainly does get tricky to think through, like, you know, what are the things we want to celebrate here? And like, what are the things we want to be worried about? There's like no point, like when you turn 20, where it's like, that that is when the government defines the beginning of your prime age childbearing years. I don't think when I was 20, I was ready to have a child. There's like no line where we say, oh, those are the births we don't want. And those are the births that are, you know, going to people who are going to be ready to be parents and going to be responsible parents. So it's a little tricky figuring out kind of like, where is this good? Where is this bad? But I think teens are like one area you can look at and say that part, like I'm very okay with, I'm okay with the fertility of teenagers. Well, and I would say actually the trend, right? I mean, if you want to get like specific about what happened, right? I I saw a lot of reaction to this on social media that was like, oh my God, you know, journalists, like, I can't believe you're not writing about how America needs paid family leave and, and subsidized preschool. But if you're trying to say like, what accounts for the fact that fewer children were born in 2017 than in 2014, right? It's not that America used to have generous paid leave policies. <laughs> right. it's, it's pretty clearly that the use of effective contraceptives has gone up, right? And so like that is – and it's an unadorned good thing, 
right? It's just that like what we haven't seen, we've seen a little bit of an offsetting counter trend, which is like better medical interventions have allowed more women in their 40s to have children, which has been just like a challenging thing to to achieve historically. But one would like to see like another offsetting trend, right, in which like it is easier for people who want to have children and who biologically are well positioned to have children to also be social policy and economics wise well positioned to have children. And we have not seen that. Right. Fertility <laughs> declined during the recession, which it almost always happens because people get in straightened financial situations. But as the economy has improved, there hasn't been some like big bounce back. And it, it's hard to say that's like because our child and family policy hasn't improved because, you know, it, it was just as bad 15 years ago. But like it is striking. And I think it's it's undeniable that like without the fertility cushion of unplanned teen pregnancies, we are now falling below replacement rates, which is like a reason to think seriously about like can we create an environment in which it is realistic for people to have second or third children, you know, who like they want to have and who surveys indicate that like many American women would like to have three or four children, but very few actually do. And I think it's clear that the the cost is an important factor in that. Yeah. So let's talk through, since this is the weeds, like some of the like policy situation. And if like you if you decide this is a problem and like I think we've gotten to the point where we feel like this is a serious issue, like what are the sorts of policies one implements to deal with this? And I do, you know, I've been thinking through, especially as I come personally face to face with the cost of childcare in America, which is turns out quite high that people are people are right when they've said that. You know, on the one hand, I do see it. I think I saw a lot of this about, you know, I think I saw a Guardian article titled, like, it's no wonder the U.S. fertility rate is going down. Like, right. we have, like, garbage family policies here. And I do think, you know, it's an important point you made, Matt, that childcare is one of those industries similar to healthcare where you don't see it getting cheaper over time, that because it is so human intensive that the comparative costs of spending on childcare, you know, until we have, like, robot nannies or something like that are just getting higher and higher compared to, you know, the other things those same dollars could buy you in terms of technology or cars or whatever other things. At the same time, you know, I look at the data of the falling birth rates in other, you know, Western European countries that have much stronger social safety nets, like places like Norway, you know, it's not like you're seeing the places where they have a full year of paid leave and subsidized childcare are showing a different trend to us. And I guess it seems to me, and I read it, there was a really nice piece that we'll put in show notes by um, Lyman Stone, where he really made a pretty effective argument, I thought, about policies to encourage childbearing. They just don't actually seem to be that effective, that you can create a lot of economic incentives, but a lot of it kind of like comes down to do you want a kid or not, which has to do somewhat with economics, but goes, you know, way, way beyond that. Well, so I, 
I think this is an interesting framing question, right, about, like, what's feasible and what isn't, right? Because I, I read the piece. It was super interesting. He said, like, he, he looked at a bunch of policy ideas that people put out there and he compared them uh, because various European countries have done different things. We have some pretty good research on how responsive people are to these things. And he said nothing that – American liberals have proposed would get American fertility rates back up to replacement rates. The thing that comes closest was a child allowance plan that uh, Timothy Smeeting and some other people at University of Wisconsin came up with. And that plan would would get you very close uh, according to most research or possibly above replacement rate fertility. Um, that happens to be a plan that I've looked at before because another thing that that plan would do is cut America's child poverty rate in half. So, you know, you might think, OK, here's a policy idea. It will accomplish two things. One is it will make America's demographics sustainable over the long term. And the other is that it will cut child poverty in half. And you might think that sounds like a really good policy, Matt. Like we should really do that. But, you know, Lyman, a, a lot of people sort of dismiss it as like, well, that's like pie in the sky, right? And no Democratic Party politicians have taken it up. And so you might ask yourself, it's like how much does this unrealistic policy cost, right, that will cut child poverty in half and uh, make America's demographics sustainable? And the answer is it's expensive. It's so expensive that it is almost, though not entirely, as expensive as the Trump tax cuts, but not as expensive as the Trump tax cuts. And also the Trump tax cuts have a lot of budget gimmicks in them. So like the real cost of the Trump tax cuts is higher than the Trump tax cuts. And the cost of A, stabilizing American demographics and B, cutting child poverty in half is a little bit less than that. So it seems to me that like It's like dumb take on this is, well, we should improve family policy. Smart take is like actually liberals, like your ideas aren't big enough to address this problem. But like galaxy brain is like, no, really, like we should improve family policy, right? That like if we took the long-term existence of American society as seriously as we take the problem of corporations with like a tax cut so they can increase their dividends – so then, tell tell me more about this plan because I'm not as familiar with this plan. Like, sure. what is this plan actually? Um, so do, you this know, meeting one. It's basically a thirty six hundred dollars a year uh, child benefit per child to every family in America. So it's like the government writes you a big check for having a kid. This is designed by the the Madison people as a anti poverty program. Uh, and so it it has a lot of anti-poverty efficacy uh, would mean basically that, you know, a normal single parent with one or two kids and some earnings uh, will get themselves out of the poverty threshold along with the other social supports in America. And it's designed, though, to be universal in this case in order to make it not stigmatized and welfare right? That like it would be like Social Security. This is just what you mm-hmm. get for being a parent. Uh, but but Stone calculates based on the experience of, of some different European countries that like that is enough money to generate, you know, an extra half a child or so um, out of typical people. Um, and that's important. Like that's a, a healthy chunk of change, you know. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about universalism in that regard, not just as a political gimmick, right? Because you get into a sort of dilemma as a 
progressive if you're like, well, we have an acute social problem, so we should have a targeted solution. And then you're like, well, a targeted solution might not be popular, so let's make it universal. But then you go like, oh, the universal solutions are really expensive, so like maybe let's make it shitty. Um, and, and you're sort of spinning around in, in circles. But if you think, no, okay, we don't have – a targeted problem. We have actually a general problem. Like the general problem is that having and raising children is expensive. And so like that's the reason why we have a universal solution. Then it doesn't look that expensive, right? Because the question is, is like, are we wasting billions of dollars on an untargeted anti-poverty intervention just for the sake of a political talking point? Or are we – no. Are we like spending all this money because it's an important problem? Because nobody says, right, like when conservatives talk about the Trump tax cut, you know, they might talk about the budget. Is it too much? Is it too little? But nobody says like, oh, it's poorly targeted. Like it's expensive because it's universal. It's universal because they think like the general problem is everybody's taxes are too high, so they make everybody's taxes lower, which is a lot of money, but it's like a serious problem. And if you think, look, almost everyone in America struggles to an extent with the expense burden of children, because this is what's critical, right? It's like if you look at something like a Hillary Clinton childcare plan, which is was based on a sort of normal liberal targeting and means testing program, you know, then you look at like a Matt Iglesias or Sarah Cliff and you're like, well, objectively, like these are reasonably affluent people. Like they could afford the kind of childcare that we are thinking of providing to low income people without special assistance. So like maybe you get nothing, right? So fine, but then you ask anyone, like an affluent middle-class person, and you're like, oh, is having a child expensive? And they will still tell you yes, right? It's not like, no, I have a good job, so it's no problem, right? Like, it's just still a big burden. And like, if you want as normalized human behavior, like married couples who enjoy kids to like have a couple, then, you know, you that's a case for a universal program. Yeah, it's interesting when I think of, like, what would be the political coalition that would get behind this. Because I do see from the liberal side, like, I could see them getting very much behind the anti-poverty side of this, right? right? Like, the idea, like, we need to keep kids out of poverty. Like, this is a good safety net. And like you said, like, that is how this is formulated. At the same time, it, it seems, like, very hard for me to envision Democrats saying, like, this is our plan to get people to have more kids. Um, You know, I I could certainly see it framed as like, we want, if you choose to like have a child, like we want this to be a good place, the the United States to be a good place for you to make that decision. And we want to have paid leave for both parents because, you know, that's something we should do to accommodate people. I guess I, I get curious, like making that argument, like this is a policy that we want to encourage people to have kids, like almost feels like it would be something that would come from the from the right in a way like yeah. you know and arguing that this that explicitly stating like that is the value behind a policy like this one even if even if you're talking about the exact same policy um i don't know if there's like a weird coalition that goes on there but i don't think it's exactly that you want to encourage people to have kids i guess i'm a liberal that's not how i would say it <laughs> is it you want to take seriously the role of parents in society. And you want to say that having and raising children is not the same as collecting classic automobiles or visiting every parrot sanctuary in the world, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because like there are a lot of things that like a 
a economically secure couple might choose to do with their money. And like American policy right now basically treats children for the poor as like a denominator issue where like you get poorer the more mouths there are to feed. But like if you're not poor, having children is treated as a discretionary personal expense, right? Like you might want to go on vacation more or you might want to have a second child. And like we are indifferent, right? And I think there's a good case to be said. It's not that we need to like encourage you to have unwanted children because that would be ridiculous. But to say that like just as we have policies to facilitate retirement savings and policies to facilitate the acquisition of higher education, that like we— But no, we have those policies because we think it makes sense for people. Like I think it's a little bit semantic. Like we're trying to encourage people to save for retirement, so we make all these policies— that make it, like, more financially beneficial to, to make that decision. I mean, it is semantic, but, like, that's—we're we're talking about words. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I, I just—I I think that it is just, like, look, look, we have public schools, right? Like, we, we already are, like, largely in on the idea <laughs> that, like, parents should have their exotic lifestyles somewhat subsidized at public expense because— the work of parenting is vital to the continued existence of our society. And just like I think that like that is an idea that liberals can embrace. I think it's not a coincidence. You know, you were saying we see this trend everywhere. But like one place we don't see this trend is France, uh, which is very all in on family policy despite um, – I don't want to say they have a non-generous overall welfare state, but the French state is a little bit less generous than Nordic welfare state overall, but more specifically generous toward parenting. But this has been like decades worth of French public policy has gone into this idea that they don't want to be uh, dominated militarily by Germany. So they want to like think about family policy in a very serious way. You know, I I wouldn't make that pitch exactly in the United States, but like it's true that like if we all go – collecting exotic parrots, like, there's going to be a problem, right? Ultimately, like, even for the parrot keepers. And, you know, (laughs) so to the extent that you can, like, make it financially reasonable for people to have historically normal numbers of children in changing economic circumstances, like, that that seems good to me. But here's – so here's the thing that surprises me is that we don't actually see – or I don't see a strong movement among Democrats as they think about 2018, 2020 to like make this their issue. I have talked to a lot of um, Senate Democrats, for example, who really want to revisit the healthcare fight. And, you know, I've asked them questions like, do you think you guys need to come back to healthcare? Honestly, expecting the answer to be like, well, we'll see. And like the answer was like, yes, like we, we need to have this healthcare fight again because it's clear Obamacare is being sabotaged and there's all this energy around public options and buy-ins and single payers and so many plans, like six different Senate plans that are flying around right now that are different versions of how you could get closer to universal coverage. There does not seem to be that energy around like the thing we are talking about, like being like, okay, you have like the pie in the sky option. You have like a different one. You have, you know, there, there are not the same half dozen plans around, okay, we are facing this problem that people in America find it too difficult to have children, and, like, there are things the government could do to ease that burden to some level, which seems like an issue that would appeal, you know, 
pretty widely and not be quite as contentious as healthcare. And I don't have a good answer. I mean, for this, this is the weird legacy of 2016, right? If Hillary Clinton was president, then instead of like doing regulatory stuff to undermine and destabilize Obamacare, would be quietly working away and trying to make it work better. A couple of states would be expanding Medicaid. The most left-wing members of Congress would be saying, like, we need Medicare for all, but leadership would be ignoring them. And we would have a lot of action. I mean, I don't think Congress would be passing ambitious family policy ideas, but, like, Hillary Clinton was definitely into family policy as a topic. Uh, A lot of the people on her team were very into it as a topic. Uh, We'd be doing articles about how Patty Murray was a rising force in the Senate Democratic Caucus, and, like, there's a big issue of hers. Um, I, I still remember... I have my transition folder of documents <laughs> of stories I was working on for well, the, the the winter of 2016 2017 all the trash uh, I, I had a big I had a big thing about this Heather Bushi was uh, the chief economist for the Clinton transition team she has a book called Finding Time yes. about work-life balance on Earth 2 that's what's happening on Earth 1 we're like back into the Medicare maw and I personally find it both understandable and unfortunate. However, the majority so far of candidates Democrats have nominated for Congress, uh, you know, new candidates, are women. And I believe I recall old Sarah Cliff articles which say that if the share of women in your legislature goes up a lot, um, you tend to see more uh, legislation introduced on family policy. Uh, So to an extent, I think the like healthcare hang up is a, a, a... like a like a legacy of dudes elected oftentimes <laughs> decades ago still trying to talk about like like the last frontier and that there will be you know some change in this right and you could see like you know maybe it's a little more realistic that you see a state legislature maybe somewhere on the west coast like i don't know washington california um i guess oregon's the other one on the west coast you know taking up something like this and getting out ahead of where congress is willing to go at this point. And I think that's a fair point, that if you do end up with more women in Congress, that you're more likely to see more attention paid to these issues. It just seems so back burner. There, there have been also, I mean, there's been a lot of state-level action on leave, yes. parental leave, which I think is, here's my totally unfounded speculation, but I think that the European family leave programs are counterproductively generous. In what way? I think that giving a new mom three or four months of paid leave is, like, really nice and is a really helpful family supportive thing. I think that giving a new mom uh, – there's also the gender balance issue, which is important. Right. But I, I think regardless of how it's allocated between mom and dad, I think giving people a full year of leave, it, like, puts you under the gun to take it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't actually <laughs> want to take a full year out of their work and be full-time childcare providers. Right. Well, it's an interesting question, right? You can combine it with other policy levers. Like, I think a world where, you know, in the United States, you have no subsidized childcare, like a full year of leave seems better than like a few months of or zero leave or even like a few months of leave coupled with tens of thousands of dollars spent on childcare versus, you know, some kind of thoughtful combination of leave plus subsidized child care to kind of like pair those because those things should they're often, you know, talked about as two separate policy yes. buckets. They're two different benefits, but they actually I mean, it's all, all just about taking care of kids. Right. At I mean, that I, point. Think, I think the optimal policy is like there's like a mix of like 
creating supply of childcare providers, right, who are like decent and you might want to go to, giving money to people so that they can either like afford that childcare or can afford to work part time or stay at home if that's what they want or just like fucking buy shoes, the cost of which is insane. Um, and Kids then shoes? Yes. Oh, it's didn't know wild. That. Find a friend to get some hand-me-downs. Um, and then, you know, and then, like, leave in the mix. But, like, I do think that there's something very, like, uh, European center-right about, like, okay, mom, like, just just stay home forever. <laughs> and, like, the government will pay you. Like, I, I mean, I think leave is good. I don't want to be, like, the anti-leave guy. But it's also worth having some, like— some real talk about like exactly how much leave people really want versus like support with the whole thing. You can like, what if we like dismantled public schools and then just gave everyone 18 years paid leave, right? Like we would think that would, that's a bad idea, right? Like there's a, there's an appropriate balance and there's a a tipping point at which like your family supportive policy actually becomes a little bit of a like, uh, isolating for right. parents, and I, I think some of the European countries have like gone to the other the other side of that. And what we really need is preschools. Well, should we talk about another policy that's good for kids? Let's like Senate Democrats. <laughs> let's talk about healthcare. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. Then we'll come back. We're sponsored this week by Dollar Shave Club. They've got great shaving products. You know all about that. But they're really beyond that at this point. They've got everything you need to, like, get ready in the bathroom in the morning. They've got this really great amber and lavender calming body cleanser. You use it in the shower. It it smells great. You feel great. And it's available exclusively at the Dollar Shave Club. You do not actually want to shave with a body cleanser, but you do want to use it. It'll make you feel great. It's going to make you smell great. And this is, like, the whole kind of range they've got. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. That's shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, and they've even got a a wipe that's going to leave yourself feeling uh, really, really nice, really clean. All of the Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that are not going to break your budget. You're going to feel the difference, and shipping is included with your membership. So bottom line, here's a great way to try a whole bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their daily essentials starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their world famous shave butter, and their best razor, the six blade executive. So you keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. You add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. Hello, listeners of The Weeds. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge, and I'm here to invite you to get into The Weeds with a new podcast. It's called Converge. Each week, we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. And we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat? The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge. You've never heard a tech show like this. So we're, we're abandoning childcare to talk about healthcare, as is typical in D.C. these days. So the paper we wanted to talk about, it's called Early Life Medicaid Coverage and Intergenerational Economic Mobility. It comes from Rourke O'Brien and Cassandra Robertson. And this is, you know, one of a number of studies I've seen come out over the past few years that is looking at Medicaid not just as a thing that pays for doctor visits and hospital stays, but a 
thing that has pretty wide-ranging economic benefits on the people who participate in it that go well beyond their life expectancy, how healthy they are, to really affect, you know, their economic mobility, their ability to obtain education, that there's something about this part of the safety net that I think we are learning from this body of research that is quite powerful and has quite long-lasting effects even after people are no longer participating in the Medicaid program. This particular study, it looks at this period in the 1980s and 1990s when a lot of states expanded Medicaid to cover many more low-income pregnant women. So back then, you used to see state Medicaid programs going up to about 50 percent of the poverty line or so for a woman who's pregnant. And you saw this increase to significantly above the poverty line, sometimes nearly twice the poverty line. So all of a sudden, a lot more women who are pregnant were able to qualify for the Medicaid program. So this is different from the expansion that we're seeing right now under the Affordable Care Act. It was a very specific categorical expansion to pregnant women. And this paper basically looked at not what happened to those women, but what happened to the babies that were in utero or were infants when their moms gained Medicaid coverage. And kind of the key finding they have is that a 10 percentage point increase in Medicaid, it works out to approximately $500 more in income as an adult per year for the kids born to the most low-income moms. So you're seeing this pretty significant increase in economic mobility, and this is kind of $500 beyond what you'd expect of a kid born to a mom of this income otherwise, you know, a mom who didn't gain Medicaid. They find that the effects are really concentrated among the lowest income enrollees and um, that it was really mattered for kids. And I thought this was kind of an interesting, surprising finding that they actually don't see an effect on expansions of kids later in childhood, that the only place where you see this income effect for kids, where when kids become adults, they earn more. It's for the kids who are either covered in utero or as infants. It is a little bit hard to wrap your head around the fact, the fact that your mom had Medicaid in utero is raising up your own economic mobility, you know, 20, 25 years later. So kind of they, you know, wrote down a line from their conclusion, which I think really gets at what they're saying, is that these target interventions early in life can effectively mitigate the deterministic power of parents' social positions on child outcomes. So this kind of adds to this body of research that I've been seeing develop over the past few years that's tracing the history and the impact of a social program and finding some pretty wide-ranging results that go way outside of the healthcare system. And, you know, I mean, as you're saying, it's just we've seen a lot of Medicaid studies now because it takes a long time to for the long term to arrive. Um, but, like, Medicaid expansions in the 1980s did, like, a lot of good. And I just think there's, like, there's an incredible amount of denialism about this fact in American political culture. You know, there's just like incredible, just like a genuinely like stingy mentality about social assistance programs, like lying behind all this work requirement stuff and, and other things, right? Like an idea that like it's really, uh, you know, like if you really need this, like, okay, maybe we have some obligation to provide you help. But just like a real like like a palpable sense that like it's just it's really bad, to be helping people out. And it's actually like it's really good. <laughs> like it's it's really good. There's like really big benefits. But I think there's like incredible 
doubt about that. You know, you see a lot of people who are like, aha, like we've done this whole war on poverty and it didn't reduce poverty. And that's because of like the way poverty is calculated. But like the life outcomes for the children of low-income mothers improved substantially. And I like, I will wager whoever is out here that like once we have 25 years worth of data on the ACA Medicaid expansion, like we're going to see the same thing that the value of these programs is quite high, notwithstanding like one study from Oregon that looked like at liver disease or something. Right. And I think, I mean, it is an interesting question because I think the research on health outcomes is often not quite as strong as the research on these other financial outcomes. Like if you, in that Oregon study from Kate Baker and Amy Finkelstein, one of the things you see is that um, you see less credit card debt, like less um, people going into default. You see insurance is essentially a financial mechanism that's protecting you from some pretty serious bills that you can rack up in the medical system. Indeed, we could call it health insurance. Think of it as a kind of an insurance Yes, exactly. One might might think of Medicaid that way. So even when, you know, they were not showing statistically significant outcomes on health, and granted, this is like, we're talking about a two or three year timeline. Like we're not talking about these studies of the 1980s, 1990s expansions. And I think most health economists, you know, I know would expect to see different long-term health results if you're going out decades versus years. But it's still, you know, a little bit interesting and surprising to me, like, how controversial the idea of expanding Medicaid remains. There's still 18 states that are not participating in the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion. Um, You know, one of them right now is we're taping. Virginia might sign up for it today. And I think they're, like, the last pretty wealthy state that is not participating in Medicaid expansion. And I think about 400,000 people would gain coverage in Virginia if they do decide to participate in expansion, which is pretty significant. Like, you look at research like this, and there's a lot of, you know, low-income people in that group. Probably not low-income moms because of these expansions we saw in the 1980s and 1990s, but a lot of single, able-bodied adults who just don't qualify for Medicaid at this point. Because at some point in the 1980s and 1990s, we made the decision that Pregnant women deserve Medicaid because they are, you know, carrying a child. There's this factor in their life that made them deserving of Medicaid. But single, able-bodied adults, you know, have never really been brought into the Medicaid program until now. I don't know, like, if, you know, their kids 20 years later are going to earn 500 bucks more, but maybe they will. Like, we haven't really seen this population in Medicaid. And I think there is decent reason from this other research we're seeing develop that really looks at kids born to Medicaid moms through this other expansion to suggest that this new population we're bringing in, like, it probably won't be exactly the same. We're talking about not fetuses in utero, but like full working adults. But it seems fair to suggest like when they get this insurance product, something is going to change pretty significantly in their lives. But also to pivot back to family policy, right? I mean, this is obviously not conclusive, but I think it is reason to believe that like, cash grants to young families would have beneficial impacts on child development over the long haul. Some of it because that money would be specifically used on supportive things, but some of it because just like Medicaid has insurance value, like a monthly check 
has insurance value. It allows you at a stressful point in your life and an important moment in a child's life to be a little bit calmer and a little bit more confident that like you're going to be able to pay rent and you're going to be able to get food and like you don't need to be freaking out about the first time you have a job mishap related to your childcare situation because you have a little bit more of, of a buffer. It's not, you know, you don't know, you don't know until you try it, but like there's reason to believe that helping poor young families be less poor has significant positive long-run benefits. It is an interesting policy design question, though, you raise. Like, if you have all this money you spend on Medicaid, is there value in turning that into just a cash grant money, yeah. of some sort? I think I generally side no because I think the insurance side of it is super powerful with how high medical bills could get. Like if you had one of these infants in a NICU, like that's like, you know, guaranteed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of spending. So in that way, you know, the dollars are buying a lot more. But I think it is an interesting policy design question to think about. Like what is the best way, you know, with this money that is being spent on Medicaid for particularly this population we're talking about? The ones that are seeing the effect are the lowest income, that as you get higher income, even within the Medicaid population, you see this effect disappear in terms of the increase in mobility. I don't know if that'd be different with a cash grant or not, but it's kind of interesting. Like, as you have these other policies we've been talking about floating around, it is interesting to think about, like, what would it look like if we spent our money that way instead? To me, this would be the good you know, if you want to be like a right winger waving around, you know, Medicaid skeptical stories, like that would be the smart line of attack, right? Is like probably if you gave every poor person a new car, like that would help them. But also at a cost benefit sense, that seems like a bad way to help poor people. That would be a reasonable question to ask, right? Is like, is this the most useful thing that you could do in terms of a large expenditure for people. Although, I mean, you've said this, right? So people seem to really enjoy the fact that Medicaid has this, like, first dollar mm -hmm. coverage aspect, which I think with our, like, social science hat on is a little questionable. What do you mean by questionable? Like, I mean, I think, like, if oh, I was— the first—oh, I see what you're if, saying. If I was, like, if cooking something up in the policy yes. lab, I'd be like, well, okay, preventative care is important. Right. And— catastrophic coverage is important. But like if you just like happen to want to see the doctor, like sure, kick in five bucks. Like like who cares? Yeah. But people people like it. I don't know. Yeah, no, it really, I mean, I think one of the reasons you see that actually Medicaid expansion gets higher favorability from people enrolled in it than people in the Obamacare plans is that it doesn't cost anything to go to the doctor. It usually doesn't cost anything to get your prescriptions filled, to, you know, access medical services. And this is like a key divide in like the many plans we were talking about before. It's a divide between different healthcare systems where Canada has this very anti-spending anything. It's all first dollar coverage. That's super important to Senator Sanders as he works on his plans. There's others, you know, a lot of other Western European countries say like, yeah, kick in a little bit. Like, we're going to make you spend five bucks just so you, like, think a little bit about going to the doctor. I personally think for, like, the Medicaid population, it just doesn't make sense that the risks of deterring necessary care. You know, this is a population, especially if, like, we're talking about pregnant women, like, they, they have kids. They're pretty busy. I, I don't think there's a lot of, like, just going to the doctor for the fun of it. Um, I think there might be getting care in like inappropriate settings, like going to an ER because that's what you're used to. But 
sometimes you just need care and nothing else is open except the emergency room. But for the Medicaid population in particular, it is popular with people and it seems to make sense policy design-wise, like not to put up barriers that might seem really small to policy drafters, but like a $3 copayment might be the reason someone doesn't go to the doctor. And I would be more worried about the negative effects of those versus like the possible benefit of clamping down on unnecessary doctor use among Medicaid patients. Well, with that, I think uh, we're going to wrap this one up. I want to uh, say thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and uh, we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.